But today, uh, today in Sunday school, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5 still. Uh, we're going to pick up at verses 6 to 8. And whereas la- we're in the middle of looking at how the church and individuals in the church specifically ought to be dealing with other individuals within the church. We're in the uh, section that deals with widows. Uh, Later on, we're going to look at how we should deal with elders, elder men within the church, similar to just a male widow, really. Uh, And then uh, when we kick off chapter 6, we're going to take a brief look at how servants ought to deal with their masters. But we're looking at interpersonal relationships. And last week, we looked at the definition of a true widow. And today, we're going to see a description of a widow who is godless and unqualified. So that's, that's the context that we're looking at today. Let's read our passage. We'll have a word of prayer, as we usually do, and then we'll get to looking at it. 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 6, down to verse 8, it goes like this. <clears throat> but she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his own, and specially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than an infidel. Let's have a word of prayer before we get looking at this. Lord, we do thank you for the day that you've given to us, another day to live and breathe and serve you. We thank you for having blessed us this past week, whether we realize it or not. You bless us just by giving us another day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity in your word. We ask that you'll show us just what you'd have for us as we look at it today. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to serve you better. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I say, today we're looking at a widow who is godless in comparison to the one that we looked at last time. Remember, the one that we looked at last time was a servant trying to serve God, living a godly life. This is a godless woman. She's described right off the bat as one who uh, liveth in pleasure, it says. Now, that, that's one Greek word. Uh, it's an odd Greek word. It, uh, the word is spataleo. Spataleo. It's not used in the Bible very much. Uh, in fact, I believe this is the only place it's used in the Bible. But it's used in a lot of Greek literature outside the Bible. <clears throat> to, and it's used to describe people who live like pigs. You might think to uh, the Odyssey. Uh, and you remember as you're reading through the Odyssey, anybody who's uh, taken high school literature has read the Odyssey. Uh, and when Odysseus and his men get to Circe's uh, island, Circe turns some of his men who live for pleasure into pigs. Spataleo. That's the term, and it's used a whole bunch in that particular passage. Uh, <clears throat> talk. Yes, ma'am. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We've begun at verse 6. We're going down to verse 8. Uh, yeah, so we're talking about uh, when it says liveth in pleasure, it's living like a pig. 
Now, the widow that we looked at last week was focused on the Lord. Her focus was on the Lord and doing His work. But this widow's focus is on seeking worldly pleasures. Now, when this term is used in other, like I say, it's not used in the Bible much, but it's used in other sources, it speaks of someone who loves extravagant living. That was the problem with Odysseus' men, and they loved Circe's wine, they loved her food, and they made pigs of themselves, and so she turned them into pigs. I'll let you read that yourself. But it's indicative of someone with very expensive tastes, with a desire for all the pleasures that the world has to offer. I think of a Winston Churchill quote. Winston Churchill had all kinds of good quotes. He says, I have very simple tastes. I'm easily satisfied with the very best. Uh, That was Winston Churchill. I've always liked that quote. Uh, Paul's already touched on the dangers of these kind of tastes in a church setting back in chapter 2 and verse 9, as you might recall. Let's back up. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9. It says, we're talking about women in the church. It says, in like manner also that that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold and pearls and costly array, for, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. He's saying to avoid those extravagant lifestyle choices. We'll get into why in just a little bit. But also in contrast to what we looked at last week, this widow seems to be one who's not truly in need perhaps not even truly godly, perhaps even both. But in spite of that, in spite of not being truly godly, in spite of not being truly in need, she's worked her way into the generosity of the church for sake of her own benefit. We see that kind of behavior described elsewhere. Uh, If you go over to 2 Thessalonians, uh, wrong direction, no, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, particularly verses 10 and 11. Paul says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. That seems to be the sort of person that Paul's describing here. Now, I don't personally believe that Paul's describing someone who's particularly heinous. This isn't a particularly evil, wicked person. And that should be pretty obvious to someone who's as smart and astute as Timothy. Maybe you and I need to be told that, but Timothy would have been smart enough to pick that up. What Paul's actually talking about is someone who's figured out how to milk the church's generosity so that they can live a a good life. But the problem is, even modest milking of the system is fraud, isn't it? Even modest milking of the system is fraud. Because why? Why? What makes it so evil? Why, why can't I just enjoy a few of the good things uh, at, at the expense of somebody else? What, what makes that so evil? Especially in a church setting. What's that? Bingo! The man gets a gold star. It's soaking up benefits that could be going to folks who are genuinely in need. Our church is not unique in a church has limited resources, right? 
if somebody else is soaking up those resources that they don't truly need, someone else who does need those resources is not getting them. And that is what Paul has particularly in mind here. So whatever the exact nature of the sin is, and I do like the vagueness here, whatever the exact nature of the sin is, the widow's lifestyle is deceiving. Did you notice that? Notice how she's described. Let's back up to verse 6. Uh, yeah, verse 6 here. But she that liveth in pleasure, that's the woman we're talking about, is dead while she liveth. She's dead while she liveth. She's not as alive as she looks. Everything may seem like she's able to live a good life, but at heart she's dead. You see. It's just like what Paul described in Romans chapter 7. Let's, let's back up to that. Romans chapter 7. We got all morning. Romans chapter 7, we'll pick up at verse 9 and 10. See how Paul describes it elsewhere. Paul says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. He seemed to be alive, but he was actually dead. And it's the same way with this person. A person who's pursuing their natural desires is actually dead at heart. So this widow here that we're talking about has no desire for the things of God. No desire for anything that pertains to godliness like the widow that we looked at last week. Go ahead and back up and look at what we looked at last week if you want to put it in context. This woman is spiritually room temperature. She's dead. She's deceased. She's passed on. She's not with us. Although she's physically living, she's spiritually dead. She's taking up valuable resources which others now have to go without. And that, if too many people are doing that, that spells death to a church. In her continuing to live this way, she can kill the whole church. That's the real significance. And by the way, this applies to each and every one of us. Did you know that? This applies to each and every... You don't have to be a widow to be uh, taking advantage of the church's generosity, you know. If you or I are demanding time and effort to feed my own little petty desires, I'm sapping the church, aren't I? And that sort of behavior is reprehensible. We as believers need to put to death our fleshly desires. That's throughout the New Testament. Don't make me look up all those passages. We need to put to death our fleshly desires so that we can help those who are genuinely hurting. Don't come whining to me about your hangnail and your stubbed toe and stuff like that when there are people who have genuine issues. Forgive me if I sound a little harsh, but that's what Paul's talking about here. Verse 7. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. Just like verse 6 that we just looked at, there's a whole lot to unpack in this one very short little verse. He says, and these things give in charge. That's a familiar phrase to you, I hope. That phrase, I'll give it to you again. I gave it to you before. I've given it to you a couple of times now. Kea tata perangele. That's the strongest kind of command possible coming from Paul. We saw it back in chapter 4 and verse 11. Let's refresh our 
memory in the context there. He says, these things command and teach. It's the same phrase. These things give in charge. When he's talking about these things, what's he referring to? What's he referring to? He's talking about the things that he's just talked to Timothy so far about widows, right? These things that I've taught you so far, teach to other people. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me that these instructions are not just for Timothy. They're for you and me too. They were for Timothy to pass on to the whole church. You see, it wasn't just Timothy's job as the pastor at Ephesus to decide who's worthy of charity from the church, is it? It's each and every single individual's responsibility to decide who is going to get their personal charity. We're not talking on a church level per se. We're talking on individual to individual level. See, when we talk about the church ought to do thus and such, and the church ought to give out charity to individuals, that may be true, but it starts to disembody it from you and me, doesn't it? What can you and I do for each individual within our church? And who is worthy of our time and efforts? And who is not worthy of our time and efforts? That's the focus. There's no such thing as the church, the amorphous blob that we talk about. That's not what it is. The church is you. The church is me. The church is you. And how do we interact? That's the whole story of 1 Timothy. I hope you've caught it. Now, I don't know if you've been keeping count, but this is the third time we've seen this Caetata Parangele show up in Timothy. It shows up five times. Very strong commands. They come throughout the book of 1 Timothy. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 3. We saw it in 4, verse 11 that we just read. We saw it just now. We're going to see it in 6.13, and we're going to see it in 6.17 as well. The very strongest kind of command. These things command and teach. That's strong language from Paul. Paul's saying, this is extremely important, Timothy. I can't emphasize this enough, Paul says. And that strong language from Paul shows the importance of Timothy using wisdom in each of these situations. This is very important, Timothy. See, Timothy's to be an overseer. He's not a commandant, but Paul's still using the strongest possible language to emphasize these issues. So, if Paul's using such strong language, why does he think this particular issue of dealing with widows is so important? Why does the issue of dealing with widows require Paul to use the strongest possible language? Well, he tells us. The answer is right there in verse 7. That they may be blameless. There's the answer. That's why this is so important. That they may be blameless. Now, we've seen that word blameless before, too. It's anapalemptoi. <clears throat> the only other place it sho- places that it shows up in the New Testament is 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, 
and 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 14, where it's talking about elders. Did you know that the very highest ethical standards are expected of Christians? We are to be held to the very highest ethical standards. You and me, each as individuals in the church. If we have anything that the world can use to get their hooks into, it harms the spread of the gospel, doesn't it? Anything that the world can hook us with stops the spread of the gospel. We can't be pretty good. Oh, they're a pretty good person. We can't be that way. We need to be the absolute best that we can be, or else we are harming the spread of the gospel. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? Now, maybe I blew my cover already, but who do you suppose the they is that we're talking about? That they may be blameless. That they may be blameless. Who's Paul talking about? Is he talking about the widows? Or, or does he refer to the people who are offering aid to them? You and me in the church. Is it the widows or is it the church? There, you get a gold star too. Marion gets a gold star. We're passing out gold stars today. Good, I'm glad people are paying attention. That's right. It could be both. The members of the church who are supporting the widows need to be blameless. And the widows themselves need to be blameless too. You know why? Because all of us as Christians ought to be blameless. Simple fact. If the widows are accepting what shouldn't really be going to them, then they aren't blameless, are they? Likewise, if the members are catering to a leech who's taking what shouldn't be theirs, then they're not blameless either. See, this is a shared responsibility you and I have. I shouldn't be making demands that should be going to somebody else and you shouldn't be satisfying the demands that should be going to somebody else. It's a two-way street. You see, in God's house, God's rules are supreme. You and I are in the family. We live in God's house. You know, with the classic statement, where as long as you're living in my house, these are the rules that are going to apply, right? You and I find ourselves as children in God's house. As long as we are living in God's house, God's rules apply. Let's move to verse 8. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So, right off the bat, he says, if any. And that word any is one of those very rare Greek words that's gender neutral. Uh, can, I, can I get on a soapbox for just a little bit here? There's a push in this nation and other nations towards gender neutrality. The English language is one of the only languages on earth that is a gender neutral language. Almost every other language, Spanish, Latin, Greek, they all have masculine and feminine genders to them. 
I personally believe this goes all the way back to the roots of Babel. I believe the push towards gender-neutral, one-world language brings us right back to the sin at Babel. That's my personal belief. That's a little soapbox. Take it for what it's worth. Anyway, this is a gender-neutral word. Any, any. This, this is one Bible word that fits in today's woke society. Anyone in the church, whether male or female or family or widow, or conceivably even the widow herself doesn't provide for their own, they are under this indictment. If any doesn't do what the rest of the verse says, they're under the indictment. If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. By the way, I believe that this statement is meant to apply to a broader group than just the widow issue that we're looking at today, too. If you want to restrict it to just the widow issue, that's fine with me. I'm not going to argue with you. But my personal opinion is that this can be interpreted in a much broader way. I think Paul's making a very broad general statement here. Each person in the church ought to provide for their own kith and kin. That's a little Gaelic lesson, too, by the way, when I say kith and kin. Anybody want a Gaelic lesson? has nothing to do with the Bible. Uh, kith is your marriage relationships, and kin is your blood relationships. That's what kith and kin means when you hear that term. There's your Gaelic lesson for the day. Uh, <clears throat> by the way, taking care of your own kith and kin, that's what the word, Greek word idios here, translated own, if they take... Uh, doesn't take care of his own, idios, really means it's your family. If you're not taking care of your family, see, Paul's being very broad here in his description, just like Jesus was with the lawyer in Luke chapter 10, verse 29. Remember when the lawyer asked him, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus' answer was basically, anybody who sees somebody else in need, that's your neighbor. If you see somebody who needs something, that's him. I'm not going to teach that. I taught that when I taught through Luke. I'm not going to go back there. In our situation here, we could say that anyone who has relatives who are widows have the responsibility to care for them. See, in Jesus' mind, providing for one's family is of utmost importance. Paul's, Paul's mind, too. Providing for one's family is of utmost importance. For Christians, that has double ramifications, doesn't it? Because we have blood relations. The only blood relations I have in this building right now is Jeremiah and Sam. I have a responsibility to care for them. They have a responsibility to watch out for me, too. Works both ways. But we also have a spiritual family as well. This is where the concept of kith and kin. You're, if you want to look at it this way, you guys are my kith. We're all, uh, we got a spiritual relationship. You watch out for me, I watch out for you. And Jesus made that very, very clear in three different Gospels telling the same exact story three times. Let's look at the one in Matthew. I'm going to steal Brother Fisher's thunder here a little bit. Uh, Matthew chapter 12. He'll get there. He'll explain it. 
in more depth. I just want a cursory look at it. Uh, by the way, um, I'm looking at the Matthew 12, verses 46 to 51. Uh, Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35, and Luke chapter 8, 19 to 21. They all cover the exact same thing. But looking at Matthew chapter 12, 46 to 50, he says, While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. And he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is pointing out that we've got blood relations and we've got spiritual relations. I'm going to let Brother Fisher expand on that when he gets there. He'll be there in just a few weeks. Don't worry about it. Just hang on to that thought when he gets there. The point that Paul is trying to make here is that the family of God ought to at least be a step above the conscientious pagans that we have around us, right? Think with me for just a little bit. There's a lot of charitable organizations in this world, aren't there, that do great things. The Lions Club, the Red Cross, um, help me out here, the Shriners even. Uh, you, yeah, well, Salvation Army, I'm going to, they, they kind of, when William Booth started that, that was actually a church organization. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of charitable organizations in this world that are non-Christian, right? Uh, so with that in mind, why would anyone be interested in Christianity if we aren't even at least as respectable as that? That's a sobering thought too, isn't it? We ought to be, we as Christians, representatives of Jesus Christ to this dying lost world, ought to be the most caring, the most loving, the most charitable people anywhere in this town knows. Right? And then people might want to be a part of us. Why would they want to be a part of us if we're not showing at least the love and charity that the Red Cross shows? That's a sobering thought. See, notice that Paul's used some pretty harsh words here for anyone who neglects his responsibilities in this regard. What does he say? This individual has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. See, to fail to step up and to support people who are genuinely in need within your church family, whether due to family or spiritual ties, that doesn't really matter. If you're failing to support genuine widows in need, you're doubly damned. That's what Paul's saying here. You're doubly damned if you're not doing this properly. When you do this, You've failed to put your alleged faith in practice. You claim to be a Christian. You're not putting your faith into practice. And you're a hypocrite 
that's lacking in at least the compulsion to give the care that even a heathen pagan would. You're worse than an infidel, he says. Not only are you denying your Christian faith, which says you ought to be taking care of them, that's what Jesus said, these ones who obey me, that's my, that's my kin. And you're not even caring for them as much as the heathen world does. You're a hypocrite too. You're doubly damned. We need to be a cut above, don't we? Will you work with me on that? Mind if I pray?